0: Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 96, The Terror. This week it's time to get our hands dirty, because on our last little look into life away from the front lines of Civil War-era Russia, we turned to the topic of internal security. The Soviet Union, especially under Stalin, was infamous for its security apparatus, and the crucible of the Civil War really set the tone to how the more shadowy protectors of the revolution operated. I've already introduced the Cheka and its leader, Felix Zhezhensky, in previous episodes. They're the Bolshevik secret police that supplanted the okhrana except they were way better at their jobs than the previous regime's guardians. Or rather, they were far more active and enthusiastic. Good is a very relative term. It may seem ironic that the party who had been hounded by the secret police for all of their existence would turn to utilize such methods, but the conditions of the day didn't allow for scruples. The revolution was new and fragile, and the Bolsheviks had no idea if it would last. I've gone over ad nauseum all the desperate decision-making that went on during the Civil War when no effort was spared to get the new regime off the ground. So, if you think the Bolsheviks would simply turn a blind eye when it came to rooting out their enemies in the parts of Russia they governed, then you really haven't been paying attention. And to be sure, there were enemies all over the country and it was as Lenin and the others sought to stabilize the new state in the first half of 1918 that the problems really started cropping up. The first big upset was the Kamuch government breaking away at the direction of the moderate socialists, which coincided that summer with the left SRs half attempting a coup via the branches of the Cheka they controlled in Moscow. Then there were the breakaway factions that threw in with the Entente landings in the north, and all those cities along the Trans-Siberians setting up their own governments. Again, many of which were controlled by moderate socialists, the guys that were supposed to be sympathetic to the proletarian revolution. Then there were the remnants of the cadets, and even more dangerously, the black 100s. Both groups were effectively ruined as political actors by the revolution and the dismissal of the constituent assembly, but their bases of support were overwhelmingly hostile to the new Russia being forged. And while many fled for the safety of white-controlled areas, not all did. And the Bolsheviks didn't let the fact that they were surrounded on all sides blind them to the possibility of enemies within. That meant resorting to extreme measures to root those enemies out, which in turn led to the Red Terror, as the Bolsheviks weren't going to let bourgeois niceties get in the way of their survival. I'm going to get two things out before I go any further. The first is that the Red Terror of those first few years didn't approach the scale of Stalin's later, um, uh, initiatives, and this was a far less systematic effort to bring the populace into line. The second thing is that in addition to the impromptu terror staged by the Reds, the Whites had their own version, especially in areas they took from the Red Army. So they won't be getting off the hook either, but since the Reds won, and ergo their evolution is what actually matters for our purposes, we'll be starting with them. The first problem faced in terms of bringing stability back to the nation was addressing the mind-boggling crime rate afflicting the whole country. Looking past the Bolshevik party for just a moment, Russia was a terribly unsafe place during those days as law and order collapsed. As first the Tsarist regime, then the provisional government crumbled away, the crime rate soared. We're not even going to get into the attacks on political enemies just yet. This was an even bigger and more out-in-the-open crisis. Moscow, in 1918, saw its murder rate increase by 10 to 15 times its pre-war level. Organized gangs sprang up, and many used the cover of the revolution to loot the urban bourgeois. Some were opportunists looking to make quick scores while the cops weren't around to stop them. Many others were normal people on the brink of starvation, grasping at anything in order to survive. It was further facilitated by the abundance of weapons floating around the major cities as the army fell apart and desertion became rife. A lot of rifles were floating around in those days. This increase in crime and absence of regular law enforcement meant that communities and neighborhoods organized to stop criminal activity around them which of course meant they formed mobs to accost anyone they suspected of stealing or killing. Summary justice was the norm, and lynchings became a common sight. One criminal activity carefully monitored for was hoarding. If someone got a hold of food or other essentials and decided to sit on it for either future use or to sell it for a profit later, they were liable to fall victim to the mobs. After all, if someone was starving at that moment, it was unacceptable for someone else to sit on food that could sustain them. These communal methods of justice were initially encouraged by the Bolshevik leadership, including Lenin. However, they rapidly spiraled out of all control, and before long, they unintentionally had made the whole situation even worse. Lenin immediately grasped that, like every other aspect of governing Russia, drastic action was needed to control the situation he directed his subordinates to act with an iron hand to restore civic order. Eventually, the Commissariat of Justice would start taking a more active hand in managing the standard courts of the nation, but like all central institutions, that process would be slow to get going and subject to the bureaucracy's expansion in the war years. As a result, the normal legal system couldn't keep up with the influx of cases to pass judgment on. In the meantime, the characteristic ad hoc style of the Bolsheviks would have to carry through. In lieu of a normal court system, a third of legal sentences were dispensed by revolutionary tribunals managed by local Soviets, while a slightly smaller share than that were handled by the Cheka directly, and just over 10% by military tribunals in areas where the Red Army was operating. Their focus was initially directed against class enemies, looters, saboteurs, and the like, but by May 1918 had expanded their oversight to judging spies, rioters, and gang members. While Lenin and the Top brass's rhetoric was to show no mercy, both the revolutionary and military tribunals dispensing sentences usually showed quite a bit of mercy. A few months of jail time was oftentimes the worst for lighter cases, and even crimes that carried with it capital punishment, such as public corruption or embezzlement on a larger scale, the death sentence was rarely carried out. It would be a different story if you ran afoul of the Cheka, though. And speak of the devil again, the Cheka. Originally, the Bureau was supposed to just manage the populace through the seizure of property, deportations, and generally naming and shaming class enemies. It also started small, with only a few dozen members in November 1917. Felix Dzerzhinsky was able to carry the department's records in a single briefcase in those early days. Unfortunately, the scale of opposition to the new regime alerted both Lenin and Dzerzhinsky to the inadequacy of such light-touch methods from a small department— Organized violence was going to be the order of the day to safeguard the revolution behind the front lines, and as a result, the Cheka's numbers swelled. Which sounds bad, and yeah, it wasn't great, but there's probably some good reasons why the Russian one was the first successful Marxist revolution, and, you know, why the socialist movements in, say, Germany and Italy were crushed within a couple of years. Half measures and sticking to every principle would guarantee only swift counter-revolution, And here, at least, the revolutionaries would act harder than their opponents. Instead of waiting around for the counter-revolution to come to them, they would strike against its supporters wherever possible. Initially, the Cheka's worst impulses of hounding class enemies were kept in check by the presence of the left SRs in the organization. Once they launched their botched uprising and got kicked out, though, all bets were off. An early notable victim was a Moscow circus clown who was brave enough to tell jokes about the Bolsheviks as part of his routine. This attracted a few Cheka agents, who were unimpressed with the performance and had the clown shot. The Cheka, everybody. Definitely not down to clown. And this early into the new regime, there wasn't quite the ingrained fear of the secret police just yet, and the entertainer's funeral became a focus of public protest against the regime. But as attention-grabbing as open displays of violence were, their much more effective specialty was infiltration. In January and February 1918, a Cheka agent posed as a czarist officer and joined an underground white organization in Petrograd that counted 4,000 members. Within weeks, the organization's membership was fully known, and the Cheka plus local red guards rounded the group up, which, hey, nice win, but also demonstrated that they had their work cut out for them. For most of 1918, the Cheka would mostly content itself with these infiltration jobs, as well as stringing along diplomats and attachés of the Entente in Moscow and Petrograd who were looking for white collaborators to work with. Pity for them, they really only found Cheka agents posing as white officers. Further out the provinces, local Cheka bosses held a lot of leeway in their activities. When not wrangling with regional party bosses over who called the shots over what, they focused on uncovering enemies of the state. And a security apparatus that couldn't find enemies never seems terribly useful, so enemies were usually found. In what became a dress rehearsal for Stalin's purges during the 30s, it was the local populace that often tattled on each other. Usually people accused each other of counter-revolutionary activity, which, you know, just boiled down to some personal grievance. But the Cheka wasn't in the business of turning down opportunities to arrest suspects. The jails of the country first filled up, then overflowed. When a suspect of a crime in one place was reported, everyone matching the description or even just sharing the same last name was hauled in. This wasn't exactly the terrifying, well-oiled machine that arose later in the Soviet Union. This was a far more diffuse group acting with fewer resources and lacking experience in controlling the populace. As a result, they used brute force methods a whole heck of a lot, leading to mass arrests and extrajudicial killings on the spot. Although this wasn't quite the norm at first, and into the summer of 1918, executions numbered below a 1,000, which sounds low given future death tolls, but I'm just getting started. This would all be before the assassination attempt on Lenin, after which things predictably went sideways. On August 30th, 1918, Lenin was doing his usual Friday afternoon excursion to a Moscow factory to give a speech to the workers. The atmosphere in the capital was tense, as the chief of the Petrograd Cheka branch had just been assassinated by an agent of the SRs. Lenin, though, went on ahead with the speech anyway. A woman named Fanny Kaplan advanced through the crowd and shot him three times. For days, he was in virtual limbo, laying between life and death in the Kremlin, with a bullet firmly lodged in his neck and blood in one of his lungs. After almost a month, he was deemed fit to travel and was shipped off to Gorky, just south of Moscow, where he could convalesce in peace and quiet. The Bolsheviks made a great deal out of their leader's survival, to a frankly excessive degree. The propaganda produced in the aftermath made Lenin out to be some kind of divine hero, straight out of Russian folklore. It was here that Lenin went from being merely the name at the front of the revolution to its face. Still alive, he became its saint. I'm not going to lie though, the campaign worked. People connected to the person of Lenin to a much greater degree when presented in a fable-like package. And where the czar and religious figures had been venerated in the homes of many, those shrines to old Russia were replaced with shrines to the new. Fanny Kaplan, who had politically started as an anarchist before becoming an SR, was captured at the scene. She was imprisoned for a few days in the Kremlin before being shot and her body destroyed on September 3rd. And since I mentioned the old Tsar, I suppose I should mention his infamous fate. I'm not going to linger on the incident since the ex-Tsar Nicholas II and his family no longer mattered in the grand scheme of things, and even to the Bolshevik leadership, the matter of their extermination was more tying up a loose end that had been hanging around too long. Also, I'll admit, I kind of forgot about him. The Romanovs had been staying outside Petrograd after the February Revolution, basically under house arrest, although everybody was too polite to really call it that. The provisional government didn't want to just let the hated family go, but also didn't have the will to do anything about them besides detain them. So they lingered on, their relations in England and elsewhere too embarrassed to take them in, even when there was an open window for them to flee. After the October Revolution, they were taken by the Bolsheviks to Yekaterinburg on the eastern side of the Urals on April 30th, 1918. Their accommodations were less comfortable than it had been under the provisional government. The family were stripped of their possessions and lived regimented lives on an estate tucked away from the world. While it was more or less accepted that they would be executed after some kind of propaganda trial in Moscow, outside events derailed that idea and forced the Bolsheviks to just get on with the inevitable. Yekaterinburg was one of the cities under siege by the Czech Legion in summer 1918, and with the city cut off, the local Bolsheviks were ordered to execute the Romanovs to prevent their capture. The entire family was wiped out by a firing squad and their bodies hastily disposed of in the nearby woods. The obviously distasteful business of killing the kids handed the whites a propaganda tool, but otherwise the executions changed the situation very little. Even the whites weren't going back to the Romanovs, or at least that branch, and their deaths were just another piece of old Russia being swept away after overstaying its welcome. But the new Russia emerging to replace it still hadn't been secured by the latter half of 1918, and the twin embarrassments of the left SR uprising and the assassination attempt on Lenin sent the Cheka into overdrive. First, the Entente conspirators that had been batted around like a cat's play thing were liquidated. Lenin was shot on August 30th, and by 4 a.m. on the 31st, The ring of foreign agents that had been trying to organize a coup in Moscow and Petrograd were rounded up. The most prominent was Robert Hamilton Bruce Lockhart, a British envoy to Red Russia, albeit an unofficial one given that the Bolshevik regime was still unrecognized. He was sent back to the UK in a prisoner exchange, but his happy fate was not shared by dozens of lesser conspirators who were executed. The efforts of the Western agents have often been played down by their home countries due to how completely compromised they were in retrospect. And I mean, the Cheka wore on to them instantly, but their activities were very real. They included organizing white opposition within Red Russia, plans to launch sabotage attacks, plans to attack key figures in the regime, and more. They were composed of British, American, and French agents who operated as envoys and military attachés. To say the least... Diplomatic relations and just basic trust between governments were not helped by their activities. And since this was simultaneous with the Entente landings all over Russia, this played greatly into the paranoia of the new state. And as we'll see next season when we come back to the Soviet Union, paranoia can be a very dangerous state policy. On September 5th, the Subnarkom, that cabinet of commissars, authorized the use of terror to root out their enemies the Cheka approached the task with gusto. Within two months, over 10,000 had been liquidated, which is to say executed, and additional thousands jailed. Any non-committed ex-officers, old government officials that hadn't made their peace with the Bolsheviks, cadets, and any black 100s dumb enough to still show their faces were primary targets. Sudden waves of arrests throughout the cities were made, and that lack of fear on the part of the population towards the Cheka withered away real quick the various regional checkup branches each started to develop their own special brand of torture, oftentimes under the tutelage of ex-Akhrana agents brought in as technical specialists, much the same way old officers had been brought into the Red Army. For example, the Kiev branch employed the classic rat-in-a-heated-bucket-strapped-to-the-chest bit, while in Voronezh, they stuck a naked victim in a barrel riddled with nails and rolled them around. Sadists and freaks were either drawn to the work or created by its very nature, and many agents turned to drug abuse to get through the day. And it wasn't just a man's job either. One Vera grebennikova allegedly carried out 700 executions personally, with many done by her strangling her victim with her bare hands. Nikolai Bukharin flippantly, or maybe not flippantly, said that psychopathic disorders were an occupational hazard of the Czechist profession as many as a half million were reported to have been killed in these sweeps of counter-revolutionists by the end of 1920. Zhezhinsky, whose nom de plume was Iron Felix, certainly lived up to that name. Included in the liquidations were also the most anti-Bolshevik of the petty bourgeois, the specialists and tradesmen who had made comfortable but perhaps not opulent livings before 1914. The Bolsheviks certainly desired to break down this demographic as well, but mass executions of that entire tier of society proved to be impractical. Besides, it would not be impossible for some use to be found for them in the new proletarian state, provided they knew how to get their hands dirty with hard work. Many found refuge in joining the rapidly expanding government apparatus, others proved their loyalty in the Red Army. But there weren't enough spots in the new regime to shield all the petty bourgeois, and the glare of suspicion fell heavily on them. Those who possessed valuables were stripped of those belongings up to and including home appliances. The deference that their education and economic station had afforded them in the past was swept away. In their place, they were given labor assignments to educate them on the nobility of hard work, which did the trick and class distinctions were torn away in Russia. People on the street, though, were understandably unhappy with the terror and almost immediately there were outcries against it. Maxim Gorky, the heralded writer who was sometimes supportive of, sometimes against the Bolsheviks, protested directly to Lenin. For his part, Lenin would humor his pet author by releasing some that Gorky spoke on behalf of, but in the end firmly refused to reign in the Cheka. Eventually, though, the more humane wing of the Bolsheviks, led by Kamenev and Bukharin, managed to get the party to publicly move away from the terror tactics in early 1919, and eventually folded the Cheka inside the Commissariat of Justice. However, the real power in the Politburo, namely Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin, protected the bureau, and they continued to operate independently. It would be Lenin himself who personally shielded the group over and over again, which, to be fair, the dude had almost bled out and had been confined to a Kremlin bed for a solid month. He probably slept better knowing that threats to the party were being actively nipped in the bud. Trotsky also saw the bright side in the cleansing use of state terror, while Stalin, well, he was Stalin. Plus, Zizhinsky was tight with both Lenin and Stalin, so he wasn't going to get downgraded either. No, the secret police in Soviet Russia were going to have a long and fruitful history, one that we'll be checking in on quite often in episodes to come. But I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the other side during the Russian Civil War, the whites, Now, the activities of both sides can best be described as abhorrent, but the Reds at least had the semblance of an explanation that they were safeguarding their revolution from very real and present threats. They went way overboard with the violence, but there was some kind of vague overall purpose that they were working towards. The Whites were mostly just incredibly bitter as their privileged livelihoods were torn away from them. As the White armies marched, they introduced terrors of their own, Burning villages, requisitioning food by force, murdering males who could be recruited by partisans to attack their rear areas when they moved on. Normal stuff during those days. This, however, was not a smart move as many of those villages and many of those people were perfectly happy to give the whites a shot as they had been subjected to economic collapse or similar food requisitions from the Reds as well. The behavior of the whites drove many right back into the arms of the Bolsheviks and when the massive white offensives were first halted and then repelled all through 1919, there was no base of support to come back from. In Kolchak's Siberian realm, an atmosphere of fear prevailed even in the temporarily luxurious and decadent capital of Omsk. His ramshackle government was staffed by men of the far right who wanted payback against revolutionaries of every stripe part of why the remnants of the right SRs in Siberia were constant thorns in their sides. Lacking the capability or even inclination to form a genuine security force, though, the efforts to stamp out revolutionary activity in areas they controlled amounted mostly to military sweeps, which just meant more villages getting razed, more civilians murdered, and more misery left in their wake. And unlike in the case of the Cheka, which actually had results, there was no effective suppression of the opposition. Red partisans and agents were a constant threat, which meant troops were just sent out even more to do the whole pillaging thing. Which you could ask if that was sustainable. Well, it didn't matter because Kolchak's realm rolled up like a carpet when the going got tough. And I've already gone over the depredations that occurred in the areas east of Lake Baikal after 1919, so I don't feel the need to cover them again here. And that's really kind of the story with the white movement behind their front lines. They were a movement dominated by military men, and they sought out military solutions, which meant sending in the troops. This distinctly military mindset also meant that the excesses of the white armies reflected the attitudes of their commanders. Under the Cossacks, their special brand was systematic looting. After all, they were fighting for separate Cossack domains and didn't care a whit about Russians, Ukrainians, or really any non-Cossacks. In their eyes, the battlefields of Russia were opportunities for old-fashioned pillaging, something that they became almost too successful at. It was during the summer of 1919 that Danekin's Don Cossacks rampaged south of Voronezh, taking town after town and stripping the land bare. Eventually, the army became so laden with spoils of war that the majority of the host retired back to their homeland along the Lower Don River, right in the middle of Danekin's life-or-death campaign. But the attitude shared by most of the formal white leadership, regardless of background, was anti-Semitism. The leadership of Tsarist Russia was at least passively anti-Semitic, which was very common around the world in those days. Nicholas II was a notable Jew hater himself, and he rewarded those who followed him in that inclination. While the white leadership was not dominated by the monarchists, they did carry with them the old attitudes. What also didn't help was that the Bolsheviks counted many Jews among their ranks, which, given the anti-Semitism of the old order that they destroyed, you really can't blame them for joining a group that actually accepted them. That Trotsky was the most prominent military authority among the Bolsheviks made the white propaganda swerve sharply into Jew bashing. He was portrayed as the evil Jewish manipulator who pitted Russian against Russian in a nihilistic war where there could be no winner. Why did the Bolsheviks kill Lazar? Well, a, there was a Jewish plot to get revenge against him. Why did they persecute the Holy Russian Church? Because the Jews among them had... Hated Christians. The hate spread, especially among the Cossacks, and wherever the white armies advanced, the pogroms followed. This wasn't like the haphazard abuses I described a moment ago. This was a systematic campaign of terror against an ethnic minority that was used as a scapegoat, especially when the whites started losing. Of course, this was also fueled by the fact that Jews were both an outsider group and also one that usually possessed trade skills that gave them better material conditions than a lot of peasants, meaning that Jews oftentimes were the bourgeois of the area, where their other status magnified resentment against them, which was a tale as old as time, but this time there were entire armies being encouraged to act on those resentments. This cropped up in a big way, first among nationalist partisans in Ukraine in winter 1918 to 1919, where bands would enter Jewish villages and kill any and all they could find, rape the women, and loot to their heart's content. And when the big white armies made their advances, they made it common practice to let their troops take a few days to loot and murder the Jewish parts of towns. Red stars were cut into the flesh of displayed corpses, and the entire people were branded traitors. From October 1st to the 5th of 1919, Cossacks ransacked the Jewish quarter of Kiev, burning down entire sections of the city, raping and murdering as they went. The white commanders on the scene kind of just kicked it for those five days, and only after the Cossacks retired on the 6th did they issue orders that, you know, they should really just knock that off. It got so out of control in the back half of 1919, when Donikin had clearly lost the war, that even the reactionaries began to be disgusted with the tidal wave of racial hatred that they had unleashed. Sometimes the whites didn't even kill their victims, they just mutilated them, chopping off their body parts. There were even instances of hunting people for sport. Sometimes the whites would roll into town to torture or gang-rape kids, which I've covered some truly heinous stuff on this podcast, but I haven't yet had to utter the phrase gang-rape kids until this point, so this is really saying something. Some 150,000 Jews died in the white terror, and some 300,000 were victims of violence who survived their assaults. Defenders of the whites like to say it was a few bad apples who spoiled the bunch, but there were no cases of any officer intervening to put a stop to the madness, and the press beat a steady drum of hatred in the white newspapers. So it was everywhere, and it was built into the whole thing. Which, okay, yeah, I think you get the point. Over the past several weeks, I've covered the miserable conditions of living in Civil War Russia and how it created scars that would carry over far into the post-war era. These episodes, I hope, paint a vivid picture of the broad spectrum of hasty policies that in hindsight were branded as war communism, even those sympathetic to the Bolsheviks could not say that the measures were successful by any metric. The nation was starving and the economy was basically gone only the police state and the creation of a new government could be considered true successes. This turned out to be enough because the Bolshevik government, including Lenin and Trotsky, were coming around to the idea that war communism had to be abandoned by 1920. This would be a hotly debated topic, though, and it would only be in 1921 that what came after would eventually materialize as the New Economic Policy, or the NEP. But the fragile successes of those early years, such as they were, created the mechanisms of control that would enable the Bolsheviks to do an about-face and turn towards a more liberalized economy across what had been previously a gigantic, ungovernable mess of an empire. And moreover, they were able to do it without the state falling to pieces all over again. So, while war communism clearly failed, the tools of governance needed for the future were at least partially developed. And now that I've gotten that out of the way, I'll turn again towards the Civil War. Thankfully, it's almost over, and its final campaigns were not life-or-death struggles, but more interestingly were political battlegrounds over what the future Union of Soviet Socialist Republics would actually look like. Oh yeah, the Poles would invade too. So join me next week, and as always, thank you very much for listening.